The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime! Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome one and all to Night Fright. As I drove into the studio tonight, there was a stillness in the air, and it's damp out there. It's a cool one, folks. It's a great night to take some time for yourself. You've earned it. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice. Settle in your most comfy chair and kick those feet back. Tonight, we look at a new theory in both the JFK and Bobby Kennedy assassination from a new book called CIA Rogues and the Killing of the Kennedys with its author and our guest tonight, Patrick Nolan. Tonight we will look at the possibility that both Lee Harvey Oswald and Sirhan Sirhan were both pawns in a game of MK Ultra mind control. Neither purported assassin aware that he was being manipulated by hypnosis and mind control. We will also take a look at the purveyors of that program, the CIA's very own Dick Helms, Richard Helms, James Jesus Angleton, law enforcement officers and their possible roles in both the assassinations and cover-ups. Patrick Nolan has researched the forensic evidence in both cases and has concluded that what the real evidence shows is not what has been portrayed to the American people. Patrick Nolan's interest in forensic history began in the 1960s when he was two years old, by the way, folks, because just look at this guy. And the assassinations of JFK, MLK, and RFK. He is a graduate of Villanova University and Boston University, though he is not a Bruins fan, thank goodness, because they just cleaned out the Habs the other night. He was an award-winning Air Force journalist, a writer-producer at ABC News Group, W Satellite News Channel and has taught at the Hofstra University and St. John's University in New York. It's a great pleasure to welcome Patrick Nolan to the show for the very first time and most definitely not the last. Good evening. How are you? Good to see you, Brent. Thanks very much. I'm doing well. Very good. Okay, what do you say we jump in right away? Let's go to the Bobby Kennedy assassination, and we'll finish up with JFK. How's that sound? Can you tell folks a brief synopsis of what took place June 4th, 1966, at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles? I can. Uh, if you read the book, we've got uh, quite a bit of detail. Uh, it was June the 4th, 1968. And that was the day of the California primary. 
presidential primary, which is uh, the biggest one in, in the U.S. And in 1968, uh, it was the most critical because whoever won the, that, that primary race and won the state of California had an excellent chance of going the next uh, few weeks from then to uh, Chicago for the big convention and winning the nomination to be the Democratic candidate for president of the United States. And it, that person would then mostly was figured that that person would most likely face off against Richard Nixon, um, who had uh, been, uh, as we all know, uh, vice president uh, under an earlier administration, Dwight Eisenhower. But the point was, people at that point in time really were upset. Uh, the war in Vietnam, we had over 500,000 troops in the country there. And uh, the death toll was rising so rapidly that it was 25,000 were killed at that point. And as it would turn out, it would, the war wouldn't end for another five years and another 25,000 soldiers would die. So this was the midpoint, really, 68. Uh, as far as the, the, the race for the presidency was concerned, uh, California was, was going to be pivotal. And we would know then uh, who was going to be the candidate for the Democratic Party. Because the, the uh, sitting president, who at that point was Lyndon Johnson, had opted out in March. He said, I'm not going to run. Uh, and he knew the polls were against him. He was getting clobbered uh, for the war in Vietnam, but also for the war at home meaning civil rights and anti-war protests. Um, people would just, just figured he would, another four years of, of his regime uh, would have been too dangerous. And so he saw the numbers and, and decided to get out uh, and not run. But Bobby Kennedy uh, picked up the, uh, the standard a week later and decided, you know what, uh, I think we can do it. And uh, by June the 4th, 1968, uh, he was uh, ready, and he had toured the whole state. He had uh, mostly, you know, obviously, the young people, the minorities, the immigrants on his side. Um, Gene McCarthy was also a peace candidate, uh, quite a bit older. Bobby was only 42. Uh, and Gene McCarthy, a senator from Minnesota, had, had a very good following, so it was, it was going to be tight. Everyone knew that. And um, as it turned out, uh, Bobby was reaching people by, by meeting them face to face wherever he could. Uh, it's funny, McCarthy used the radio and TV, and he was able to reach people very well. That was his best, best uh, medium. Uh, but at, at any rate, the polls opened on June 4th, and uh, uh, the early voting was for McCarthy because the, the minorities and, and the immigrants and, and the, uh, a lot of the people in the, the urban vote, let's say the urban vote, didn't really come in until late. And, and when it finally came in, uh, that would be the deciding factor. But on the morning of June the 4th, uh, a very important person in this whole story was a man, a 24-year-old, very young man, uh, Sirhan B. Sirhan, uh, who eventually uh, is accused and convicted of, of the crime that, that the book is about, the assassination of, of Robert Kennedy. Uh, and my thesis is that 
John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy were both killed for the same reasons by the same people. Let's go to the assassination first of Bobby Kennedy, June 4th, June 5th, 1968. Bobby Kennedy's just leaving uh, a crowded ballroom where he said, on to Chicago and let's win there. What happens next? Who takes him by the arm and guides him through the kitchen to his ultimate demise? Okay. There was a, uh, a guard who uh, was there to, uh, for car crowd control. It was 26-year-old uh, Thane Eugene Cesar. And some people have you know, written that you know, he well could have uh, uh, been uh, one of the gunmen or the gunman, well, one of the gunmen, you know. Uh, Sir Han obviously was seen with a gun, you know, firing, you know, when we get into that. But, but this guard also had a gun, okay. As it turns out, uh, he leads Kennedy from the, the, the podium area, along with Kennedy's other uh, friends and his wife, and into uh, a pantry-like area where they were, it was they were taking a shortcut to be able to get to um, the colonial room, which was where Bobby was going to present, or Bobby Kennedy was going to meet with the uh, media, and uh, that was going to be uh, a special uh, time for the radio and TV and newspaper people to, to answer, you know, to have get their ans uh, answers to their questions. Uh, as they go through the shortcut through the pantry, uh, Bobby shook hands with several of the uh, bus boys. Uh, and then looked up, and uh, about five feet away, uh, Sarian, gun in hand, uh, started firing. Okay. And that's why people think it's a closed case, because at that point, 70 people were, had crowded in and were, were, did see Sarian with the gun firing. Okay. What they, well, what they didn't see, many people didn't see, is... Uh, Next to Sir Han, there was a woman uh, in a polka dot dress who had been seen earlier with, with Sir Han. There was a, a, a man with a uh, white shirt, gold sweater, dark pants who had been seen with them for the last several days at, at various locations. And also, uh, there were two men on each at the very end facing Bobby. One had a light suit, uh, one had a, had a dark suit on. These two men were also seen by at least 10 witnesses uh, during the shooting with guns in their hands, okay? It appears that one of them uh, lunged his pistol into Bobby's back, fired twice, third shot up here in the back of the, uh, the head, and then uh, a fourth shot went through the shoulder pad. The other appeared with a newspaper to be firing into the ceiling, and all the... the Investigators said the ceiling was completely filled with, with holes. Well, where did those bullets go? Those were ricochets coming down. They wounded five people. So who's trying to simulate Sirhan firing? The scenario was that the man shooting the ricochets would be account for all those other bullets out of the Sirhan gun. Well, we've analyzed, the experts analyzed the Sirhan gun later we found lead in the barrel. Now, lead in the barrel comes from um, shooting certain kinds of uh, bullets at the firing range. Well, that all that lead would have been blown out if he was actually shooting live rounds. Well, as it turns out, 
during the assassination, people noticed uh, another thing. A flame shooting out, a foot-long flame. The gun doesn't, with the live round, doesn't shoot a foot-long flame. It only shoots like a one-inch flame. What is this? this is, these are blanks. Now, obviously, they loaded his gun with blanks because they wanted to make sure that the actual assassins on Bobby's rear and side weren't, weren't killed or hit. Uh, but they still had to account for those shots. Uh, so they had the, the, rico the ricochet man, let's call him, shooting down from the side and actually wounding five people. Why didn't those five people die? Why were the wounds so superficial? Because they were ricochets many times. Ricochet, you don't get the full impact. These are some of the anomalies, folks, in the Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy assassination we're talking about. Now, Sirhan Sirhan's gun holds eight bullets. Okay? Four shots were fired at Kennedy from behind and to his right, with the fatal bullet fired from only one inch away behind his ear. Eyewitnesses placed the barrel of Sirhan's gun no closer than two to five feet, not inches, and only in front of Kennedy to his left, never behind Bobby. In 1982, a Stanford audio test of newsreels revealed 10 shots. Audio expert Philip Van Prague told CNN that his analysis establishes newspaper reporter Stanislaw Prusinski's recording as authentic and the 13 sounds electronically detected on the recording as gunshots. So in other words, according to Stanford, and I'll hold up my Stanford cup, <laughs> sent to be mine, my nephew, thank you, Tyler, who's a rocket scientist at Stanford. No kidding, folks. This guy's amazing. Anyways, and getting off track, I just want to tell you that, so between Stanford, they found 10 shots, and, and uh, Philip Van Prague found 13. Now, from a gun that only holds eight bullets, isn't that amazing? So, you know, there was some other anom anomalies, too. There was no drug or alcohol test given to Saran. Uh, witnesses saw two guys in suits, as we've just mentioned. And it goes on and on. Let me tell you about Paul Schrade, folks. He was standing directly behind Bobby Kennedy. He was only 43 at the time, and he was a member of the executive board of the United Auto Workers. And he was involved. He was the chairman of Kennedy's campaign for labor. Paul was shot in the head, standing only a few feet behind Bobby. This is his quote made at Sirhan's parole hearing on February 9th, only a year ago, 2016. This is his own quote, Paul Schrade's quote. The LAPD and the LADA district attorney knew two hours after the fatal shooting of Bobby Kennedy that he was shot by a second gunman. Not just one guy, two. And they had conclusive evidence that Sirhan, Bishra Sirhan, could not and did not do it. The official records show that the prosecution at Sirhan's trial never had one witness and had no physical or ballistic evidence to prove Sirhan shot Bobby Kennedy. Evidence locked up for 20 years shows that the LAPD destroyed physical evidence and hid ballistics evidence exonerating Sirhan and covered up conclusive evidence that a second gunman fatally wounded Bobby Kennedy. This is part of the stuff um, 
that makes up the reality of the Bobby Kennedy assassination. Now, what I want to get into is in from the book is CIA rogues and the killing of Kennedy of the Kennedys by Patrick Nolan. www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover, take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. Is what was controlling? What was behind Sirhan Sirhan's quote? Patsy attempt, as I call them. There's two Patsies in this story. We're going to be looking at Lee Harvey Oswald and hit the parallels to Sirhan Sirhan in just a few minutes. But let's get into MK Ultra and what most people have believed for years that Sirhan Sirhan was under some kind of mind control slash hypnosis control. Can we talk a little bit about that, which is the thesis of your book, Patrick? Absolutely. Thank Absolutely. you, sir. Yeah, Sirhan Sirhan was an immigrant from Jordan. He, he came over in 1957, he was 13. Uh, he was from a family of six children. And the, the, uh, his mother Mary and uh, the father uh, came over uh, to start a new life because of the Arab-Israeli uh, wars that were going on in the Middle East. And they settled in Pasadena. Well, sure enough, he, uh, he became very Americanized quickly uh, people don't know this, too, as many people. He, he wasn't even, they weren't a Muslim family. They were a Christian family, okay? Um, so the people that say he was, a, you know, an early uh, Arab ra Muslim radical uh, are missing the whole point. Uh, so it is odd that he was chosen. But we have evidence, intelligence files show us that they had done surveillance on Sirhan Sirhan prior to the assassination. And this, this file surfaced after Bobby was killed uh, when investigators went to LAPD and, and the FBI investigated. And sure enough, there was a file. Why would there be a file on Sirhan Sirhan before the assassination? It was surveillance. It was what schools he went to, what his family was like. So he was under uh, watch before, before. Now, one reason for this him being under watch by the intelligence agencies was because, it, quite frankly, his best friend, in junior high and in high school, uh, in college, uh, started an SDS chapter. Well, that's Students for a Democratic Society. So this would have been in 19, let's see, 54, 44, 54, 60, 62, uh, starts an SDS chapter. It start, tried to, anyway, his friend, Saran's friend, Walter Crow. Well, at that time, the CIA had a program called Chaos in the U.S. where they were monitoring all anti-war activity, um, say in 64, 65, all the way through, and civil rights movement as well, looking to, basically their excuse was we wanted to, they wanted to find out if there were ties between the demonstrators and the anti-war people and the Soviet Union. You know, because once they had foreign ties, then they could say, okay, this is, uh, we, could, we could sell this problem, or they, they would have a right to look at it. But otherwise, they really didn't have a right to look at it because the U.S. is the FBI's domain, not the CIA's domain, uh, the way it's set up down here. But at any rate, he was under surveillance. He was being watched because of Walter Crow, his friend. And Walter tried to enlist him in Students for a Democratic Society. And uh, Walter was a Marxist. And, you know, in those days, many college kids considered themselves that way, partly because, mostly because they were anti-war, I think. But... Sir Henson here refused to join. He, didn't, he said he was apolitical, apolitical. He wasn't interested. He just wanted to get a good job, make some money. He, wasn't, he didn't care about politics. And uh, Walter went on to UCLA, and they parted ways. 
uh, although they, they kept in touch, but uh, Sirhan went to Pasadena uh, Community College, and uh, he, he never got involved in, in, in anything really political, but that file existed, and there, he was being watched. At any rate, uh, he, he also, uh, some people think that what happened was he became very involved in the occult, okay, and uh, at the same time, he, he, he took a job as a, uh, a horse uh, breed, a breed, a groom, you know, in a horse breeding place, and there he, he met some, some characters that were involved with the mob, uh, Frank Donnarumas, uh, and also some other sinister, another sinister character who we think, we were not sure who he worked for, but uh, Sir Han's friends have said that this, this man was someone uh, to watch out for. At any rate, what, what happens is Sir Han um, uh, becomes uh, very involved in, in, in reading and, and trying to find out more about the occult. And uh, at, at that point, he, he did have he had a terrible accident on a horse. He was thrown from a horse and went to uh, several number seven doctors. And uh, even then went to hypnosis experts to try and relieve the pain. Uh, the pain was in uh, his left eye. And, uh, you know, he ended up with stitches and all and recovered, but the pain didn't seem to dissipate completely, and he felt that uh, hypnosis would help. And so some people think it was there that he ended up falling into the net of a CIA program that was... Um, ongoing in, in that place at that time. Let's get a little bit of the history of the MK Ultra program. Approximately, when did it start and what was the ultimate goal that they wanted to achieve? We hear of the Manchurian candidate where they wanted to program somebody that would be unaware, and this is chilling folks, that would be unaware that they're committing an assassination. So it's plausible denial to the maximum. It started in 1950. The, re the research started in 1950 at CIA. What they were trying to do was create a, uh, a way of programming someone to commit a, uh, an assassination and, uh, and not remember it later. And it had, they would give them, CIA, plausible denial. Plausible denial meaning uh, the person wasn't connected to them in any way. Uh, the program didn't work. Partly because it was uh, two reasons: it was unreliable, uh, and it was un it was unpredictable. If you if they, the guy was too drugged, uh, he he wouldn't hit the target. If he wasn't drugged enough, he would recall later what happened, and you couldn't have either. The memory had to be irretrievable. The person couldn't they didn't want the person to remember anything how it happened, uh, who had done it, who had programmed them, programmed them, and and why. And uh, but they also had to be deadly accurate. So when when the program f was failing, this is after they had already come up with uh, years of the 50s, the 53, 54 years of research to find the right drugs that you, you would need to be able to create this situation where a person could be programmed and the right hypnosis techniques. Those two combined, uh, they tried LSD, uh, mescaline, marijuana. So connecting the right drug with the right um, hypnosis techniques and program, post-hypnotic suggestion, they were able to get someone to do what they wanted. But they, since it was not totally reliable, they said, let's have this person, uh, this is my thesis, be the fall guy, get blamed for it, which was the whole goal. CIA isn't involved, no one knows anyway, 
but the actual shooters are on the sidelines. And in both these assassinations, the actual shooters are on the sidelines. And that's what made the program work. The movie, The Manchurian Candidate, is, is totally different because in that film, the depiction of the hypno-programmed person is the, is the person who does the actual shooting. No, this is different. The actual person doing the act, people doing the actual shooting are on the sidelines, well-hidden, expert marksmen. The fall guy is the one who's blamed, who has gun in hand or whatever. Now, the two assassinations are different in the sense that Sirhan had a gun in his hand, okay? Uh, and he gets blamed. I don't believe Oswald was in the uh, sixth floor firing a rifle. They, they didn't need to do that there. He, he was seen in the lunchroom minutes before and just a minute after the assassination, sitting in the lunchroom having a coke. Couldn't have been on the sixth floor. And uh, they didn't have to have him firing, but they had, obviously, the sharpshooters on the sidelines in three different locations. Dr. Bernard Diamond, who hypnotized Sirhan for the defense, and what he found and what his conclusions were, and Dr. Seymour Polak, who hypnotized Sirhan for the prosecution, and what his conclusions were. And what struck me in your book was the conclusions were eerily similar. I would have expected the exact opposite coming from the uh, prosecution's desk as opposed to the defense desk, but not so. Can we talk about those two guys? Yeah, it is interesting to, to note that the prosecution and the defense in, those, in that time, 1968, were using hypnosis. They would use hypnosis to, uh, to, to take a, uh, a defendant and try and find out what their motive was. You don't really see a lot of that, you know? I don't know. But anyway, the, the two men, the two doctors, found similar things. They, they both found that Sirhan was unusually susceptible to hypnosis, and it appeared that he had been hypnotized many times before, just the way they were able to do it so quickly to him. Uh, and when he was in a trance, or hypnosis, under hypnosis, he was really under. And the post-hypnotic suggestions, they, they, they always worked. Uh, they would ask him to do something under hypnosis, and uh, when they woke him up, they, they, they would do whatever it was, and, and he'd react immediately uh, according to their uh, his suggestion, post-hypnotic suggestion. So it was amazing. Um, but they were befuddled uh, when they started asking him things like, okay, under hypnosis, uh, where was your gun? Where was your gun? And he was like, what gun? And he, he, doesn't, he, had, he was programmed so that he would not have any memory of the situation, the shooting, where, who held the gun? Looks like the gun was thrust into his hand by the woman, anyway, who had a, a sweater uh, at the actual assassination. And uh, the program, he took over and he just started shooting. Um, but, he, but under hypnosis later on, did not remember. And then they said, well, okay, maybe he's making it all up. You know, he, he's, he's said, pretending that he's uh, under. But they tested it so many times that they, they knew this guy isn't faking. Uh, he really d doesn't remember. And uh, then they really brought, later on when he was sent to prison, another uh, expert, Dr. from Estonia, Dr. Callas, uh, uh, Callas, Simpson Callas, Eduardo Simpson Callas, he studied Sirhan for 35 hours. And he came away saying um, he was programmed. Sirhan had to have been programmed, but based on all the answers we're getting uh, of what happened that night. And then the warden came down and said, okay, doctor, uh, we, you're not going to be studying Sirhan anymore. Uh, you know, they didn't want that out. They, and the excuse was because you're not 
studying other prisoners that way, and you're only studying him. And so Dr. Simpson quit, walked out the door. He had been there six years. He said, I'm not going to live this way. Uh, this is a cover-up. And uh, I think he ended up teaching in, in Santa Cruz. You know. Doc dress girl. And because she's a big part of this, many people feel that she may have given him the trigger, um, either in terms of voice recognition, if you will, or gestures or something. But she was the one to trigger him, Sirhan Sirhan, I'm talking about, folks, to do the deed. Can we talk about her a little bit? Because a lot of people saw this girl, and she ran outside, and she was screaming, we got him, we got him, we got him. And uh, Lisa Pease told me that they found a dress, a polka dot dress, uh, not far from the scene that night. So that, that's another interesting fact, too. Lisa Pease, folks, uh, renowned researcher, uh, JFK assassination, Bobby Kennedy assassination. Find her show, www.nightfrightshow.com, in the archives, or just Google Lisa Pease, Bobby Kennedy, Night Fright Show, and, and it'll come up. Well, for 10 days before the assassination, is your sound sound still on? Can you hear me all right? Okay. For 10 days prior to the assassination, there were there were uh, nine nine uh, incidents where um, witnesses saw her with the same the same description with of a girl with her hand who was uh, you know mid twenties, shoulder length hair, uh, medium brown color, odd nose, odd chick nose. They all said one said pudgy, one said. Uh, uh, just different, different explanation. But it, it was something unique that stood out, and people saw that. But she was very, very attractive and, and a terrific figure. Uh, well, okay, okay. They, they, we know that if you're going to program someone and, and they're under hypnosis, you do need a trigger. Right? So she's been looked at as probably his um, handler, but also uh, a certain thing that she would say or do could. And this is we know this from his study of hypnosis could trigger a post-hypnotic suggestion that would activate or motivate and, and uh, make her hand do something. And in this case, to shoot, to fire a gun. And the places they were seen were interesting. They were seen uh, at Bobby Kennedy uh, events, a couple of events, two or three events. And, and then so that everyone figures, well, the, the planners, the plotters were trying to establish premeditation. Stalking, okay. Well, I, I'm sure that was part of it, and it looks like the other part of it was also testing their uh, programming and their hypno programming, you know, to make sure that their uh, subject, the Patsy, uh, was going to act on cue, or or, or any little uh, any little um, suggestion that or whatever, whatever the trigger trigger from this particular woman. Um, the woman, Sirhan, did say at one point in his interrogation later, I remember seeing a woman that night uh, at, at the embassy room in the Ambassador Hotel before Bobby was shot, and she, I, was, I needed coffee, and I was going into a, uh, I said, all I remember is I was so tired, and this is when the drugs were kicking in, apparently, and he said, I had to have coffee, and I saw her there, and I asked her if she wanted a cup, and we shared a cup of coffee. Well, people did see them with her with him, and that's the girl with the polka dot dress. Uh, he said that she seemed foreign, like, like Arabic, you know? And now I know that the people who came up with programming 
had a very close ally in the Middle East that, uh, and they used their people, their CIA, CIA used their people, their CIA people. That was the SAVAK. SAVAK was the intelligence agency of Iran at the time, a strong ally of ours. Under the Shah, folks. That was before 1979 revolution. Yeah, Khyber Khan. Yeah. And she could have been uh, someone, you know, involved with that group. Uh, we don't we don't know much more about her, you know. I think myself that she was also um, programmed in a sense. Uh, they wanted her to be able to, if anything happened, and she got she she got nailed or something. Uh, they wanted her to uh, to take to take the fall as well, because as she ran out, people heard her saying, "We shot him," and so the program would have either been. Let's let's have her say that you can you can program someone under hypnosis and drugs to say certain things at certain times, and that that would have been a, a perfect uh, you know way of showing he, she's involved. Number one, and uh, I think people also were the platters were afraid that maybe maybe we could use her and have her say that and make it look like it's, it was a um, a Charlie Manson type murder. Now this is a year or so prior to Charlie Manson. But there were a bunch of occult, occult-type groups in California. And uh, it would be easy to blame one of those groups, saying that uh, because they killed for no reason many times. I mean, they killed. They were, they were dangerous, uh, some of them. Uh, it, and it was the drugs that they were on and all of that. Uh, and, some, and some crazy people. I'm referring to Charlie Manson. Um, and many people saw her, too. Um, I think of Susan Serrano. And she was giving testimony folks uh, under interrogation by the LAPD and the LAPD kept hammering her and hammering her no you didn't see that no you didn't see that. and this reminds me of the Kennedy assassination too with June Hill when she was giving her testimony when she was being interrogated they kept hammering at her no you didn't hear three shots they were echoes you're crazy we're going to you know we're going to put you in the loony bin if you don't tell the truth and things of this nature so all this intimidations going on with witnesses key witnesses and what ends up happening is testimony gets changed, testimony gets wishy-washy, if you will, and the witnesses who are solid in the beginning end up looking like they, they're not quite sure, and you have to examine them. The parallels are stunning. MKUltra, uh, in the 50s, late 50s, early 60s, in Montreal, Canada, where I grew up, there's... Um, a psychiatric hospital called the Allen Memorial. The CIA were funding a program headed by Ewan Cameron. They were using LSD, behavioral techniques, all kinds of awful things to try and get this mind control thing under the auspices that they were going to beat schizophrenia. That's the excuse that they were giving everybody for these horrible, horrible experiments they were doing. It's associated with McGill University, the Allen Memorial. It's a teaching hospital. It's better now, folks. It, you know, it's out of the dark ages. Just before Cameron started his program, there was another, another psychiatrist that got his degree from McGill. His name is Dr. Renatus Hartogs. Okay, so now you've got MKUltra fully established in Montreal. In the summer of 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald is spotted in Montreal, just down the street from the Allen Memorial. Why do we know this? Because a Canadian customs official 
spotted Lee Harvey Oswald giving out, of all things, the free Cuba pamphlets that he's noted for giving out in New Orleans. So we can establish a connection between Lee Harvey Oswald and Montreal. Fast forward, 1967. Are you ready for this, folks? Just around the corner from Lee Harvey Oswald spotted, James Earl Ray is spotted in a club there speaking with a guy by the name of Raoul, who to this day, he maintains, hired him to kill Martin Luther King Jr. Let's go back to Dr. Hartog's for a second. Remember I said he was the psychiatrist before Ewan Campbell? Guess who he interviewed? He gave the testimony against none other than Lee Harvey Oswald because he interviewed Lee Harvey Oswald when Lee Harvey Oswald was around 12 years old. And that report, psychiatric report, nailed Oswald as a lone nut malcontent. True story. That's true story about Montreal. Uh, MK Ultra, the Allen Memorial, Lee Harvey Oswald, Sirhan Sirhan, maybe. We don't know. There's no connection there if he made it to Montreal or not. And James Earl Ray. How weird is that? So when does coincidence stop being coincidence and become something else? So there's some connections. Can we talk a little bit about the parallels between Sirhan Sirhan and Lee Harvey Oswald now? They're chilling, folks. Patrick? Well, I was just going to add to what you said, too, about Montreal. There was a center of MKUltra uh, hypnosis and programming experiments because Richard Helms, who ran the program with James Angleton, and those two men, one, was, one eventually became the head of the CIA in 1966, and, meaning Richard Helms, and his counterpart in counterintelligence, they worked together, was James Angleton, uh, chief, of, chief of counterintelligence. But they used Montreal because they needed a place outside the U.S. It was safer, much safer. And you're right. I mean, well, I do want to say one more thing about Sirhan's and Sandra Sirhan. Just to jump back for a second, the, the men that interrogated the witnesses who saw that the girl with the polka dot dress was Sirhan and all that, both of those interrogators were LAPD cops who had previous lives at, with the CIA. They had both worked with the CIA, with the CIA in Latin America. Okay. And once you're in, I think you're always in. They counted on them, and they came through for them. They made sure those the witnesses weren't were, were uh, changed their stories, and they did. They did. Uh, the other person I was going to mention was uh, in Montreal. Uh, boy, wow. We know we know James Earl Ray was up there. Interesting story about Oswald. That's true. I know. And the uh, the Sirhan Sirhan story, as far as his where he was programmed. We don't know, but it could very well could have been Montreal. That makes a lot of sense. To fly him up there, and you know, in four or five hours would have been no problem. He, Sirhan Sirhan goes missing in December of 1967. He's gone for three months, all right? And, and people have written to me saying, just because someone's missing for three months doesn't mean they were programmed. Obviously, but it is ironic that it, the, we all we, we know from, from CIA reports and all that a hypnoprogramming course or not course but regimen takes three months time the new york psychiatrists have, have proven this it's a three-month deal to, to really get it right he's gone for three months uh, he, he's he's gentle polite um hard honest 
before he goes away. He comes back three months later, Sirhan Sirhan, he has trance-like states, amnesia, rapids, they saw him on various occasions, rapid speech, irritable, depressed, right, really wound up. He knew something was wrong with himself, and he didn't know what it was, and that's what it was, obviously. He, he writes uh, notebooks that, that, that they use as to, uh, the police found notebooks that he had written. Turned out, analysts have said, this stuff is written on drugs. Now, Sirhan didn't do drugs. Uh, and so the, uh, and other analysts have come along and said, well, look, if he was on drugs when he wrote this, it's automatic writing. Automatic writing is when you're hypnoprogrammed and then told to write stuff. And that's what these notebooks consist of, some of it incriminating. Yeah, and he would write, RFK must die, over and over and over again. It's kind of like, if you've seen the movie The Shining, folks, when... Um, uh, the character, uh, what's his face, his character is just writing the same thing on the typewriter over and over and over, obviously going through some kind of psychosis. And, uh, you know, this is what... Sir, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's what Sir Han, Sir Han does. RFK must die and all this stuff over pages of it. Yeah, right. So it doesn't show premeditation. What it shows is programming, hypno-programming. Um, so... That, so the evidence that we have for hypnoprogramming is pretty solid. The CIA contacts, they were, they were the ones who controlled the investigation. Um, the two officers in, in the LAPD, they were four, former CIA people. The military intelligence report on Sahan before the assassination, that's, a, that's another. And the third thing is there is a CIA person who did hypnoprogramming in even F. Lee Bailey, the lawyer, used this man one time. He used this, this, this hypnotist whose name was uh, William J. Bryan, Dr. William J. Bryan, uh, who was considered probably the best hypnotist, hypnotist in the United States, bar none. And he was kind of a psycho himself and bragged to people that he had hypnotized their hand. And later, when reporters came to him and said, okay, uh, what's this all about? He denied everything. I was, uh, he only told people that he did it when he, he felt that he was, when he was in speaking in confidence. Uh, and then, of course, a strange thing happened to him. Here he is, uh, it's 1977, and uh, the House and select uh, hearings on the assassinations of, 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 of John Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Uh, he's called. He's called in. Just to testify, he's found dead. Cool, he's found dead yeah, in a hotel room in Las Vegas. So yeah, no coincidence there. There was a whole bunch of people, Johnny Roselli, all kinds of people that were found dead. Uh, even George DeMorenshield. There's a good segue right into JFK and the assassination and Lee Harvey Oswald. Can we talk about that dynamic? Because this is another dynamic that I think in your book that leads to the possibility of Lee Harvey Oswald being taken into the CIA and given some NK Ultra treatment. Right, right. Two, two major points with Oswald that people don't talk about, and they should, because they, they, they go in the direction I'm writing. One is that he spoke fluent Russian in the service. All right. Now, there's only one place in the service you can learn how to speak fluent Russian the way he did, and that's at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. And it's a place where they send soldiers that have a high aptitude in language. He happened to have it. He had it. It's a gift. He was a high, high school dropout, but he had that gift for language. Uh, he may even been dyslexic, but he, he could he could have the audio ability to hear to recall, 
and uh, to speak, in, in, you know, in another language. They test, they test, they test you very. Uh, it's a very difficult test, and he passed with flying colors, I'm sure, because he ended up uh, speaking fluent Russian to people he knew in his assignment. Where did he learn? He didn't learn. No one saw him studying it at night, you know, and it's a difficult language to learn. It's a different alphabet, the Russian language. It's Cyrillic. Uh, so, but I looked at his timeline, and it fits in perfectly with when he got out of basic, the timeline, the nine months he would have needed to go to the language school and graduate, fits perfectly with when he left the U.S. to go to, a, where was he assigned? A CIA base in Atsugi, Japan. So the timeline squares. He gets there. What's his job? His job is obviously to intercept uh, Russian um, communications and translate it. All right. Now, a lot of communications is in code, but even if it's in code, it still could be in Russian. It has to be translated to English, you know. Uh, and that's what he did at the CIA base. He, I'm sure he was doing intercept. We intercept plane communications, planes, fighters, ships, all right, tanks, submarines, missile sites. All these communications, now it's satellites do most of it, pick up the signals and they, they send it down, whatever, Fort Meade, and they trans translate it. Uh, but at that point, you had CIA, uh, well, Army, Army linguists intercepting signals, translating on the spot, finding out it wasn't just taking pictures. Everyone says, oh, you two had to go up and fly around and find the missiles. They, they were intercepting audio tracks uh, 24 hours a day. So that was his job. So he's already in the intelligence agency when he's working over there. Comes, they bring him back, and they had a program called, uh, well, it was a fake defector program, where they would take a soldier like him and send him over to Soviet Union posing as a defector. And there, picked up more on the ground and boots on the ground. You know, they needed intelligence that they couldn't get from the U-2. They needed to get it from people like, like Lee. So Lee Harvey Oswald, he gets out of the service and goes over there. How did he get out so quickly? How did he get his passport right away? How did he get the funding? Now, all these things happen without any problem. No problem at all. And folks, when he arrives back in, uh, in the United States, you think he would be taken right away by the CIA, FBI, somebody as perhaps a subversive. Oh, no, <laughs> not at all. He's ushered, he's ushered through everything, and off he goes. He goes off to New Orleans. Now, George de Morinshield, folks, the background on him, he's an older fella. He's a Russian guy, but he's what's called a white Russian. What that means is that he was anti-communist. In other words, he was not for the Soviet Union whatsoever. And yet we've got Lee Oswald, according to the Warren Commission report and everybody that's yes. portrayed him, as pro-communist. So what is this young kid doing with this older man who's an anti-communist? And you've got Lee Harvey Oswald made out to be pro-communist. Can we talk a little bit about George DeMornshield's role in this? Absolutely. He, you know, as a young uh, intelligence operative, his role clearly was to find out uh, what the pro-Castro Cubans were doing in Dallas and Miami, and now Dallas and New Orleans, what the pro-Castro people were doing, and the anti-Castro people, just keeping tabs on all of them, because there was a lot of activity at that time where uh, different elements uh, in the government and in the you know, intelligence agencies in the government, they wanted to take over Cuba, and they wanted to get Castro out of there. They, they needed people like Oswald to uh, gather intelligence, 
and especially someone who had his his uh, legend was that he had defected to the Soviet Union. So it could have been very easy for the CIA to get him into Cuba under the guise of being a, a true defector, which he wasn't. He was a fake defector. But they, they, they figured they could get him into Cuba. But I think really, and I think Oswald wanted to go to Cuba, you know, as, as, as an intelligence operative, because that, that, that's, that's a real feather in your cap. But at the same time, I think that the intelligence agency was, the intelligence agency was really trying to frame him at that point, make it look like he definitely wanted to get into Cuba as a pro, to be a Cuban, uh, to be a, to be join the Cuban Revolution, um, to make him look more, much more uh, uh, antagonistic to the United States uh, when it came to blaming him for assassinating the president. So that was, I think, that was part of their long-range ploy, was to uh, set up this person. As a guy who uh, his ultimate goal is to be with Fidel. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think he was being cheaped and for ease to get into Cuba. Some people speculate maybe to shoot Castro. You know, we had Dick Helms and his programs going on back then. Or perhaps to do some kind of uh, spying, maybe being taken into the inner circle of Castro and relay information back. There's all kinds of potential. Once you get an operative into a place like that, you can pretty much place him anywhere and if he looks like he's pro-communist and he's got the history of already being in the Soviet Union you know it's kind of like you said a feather in his cap now what's interesting is Lee Harvey Oswald's actions after the assassination can we talk a little bit about that how he makes his way to the Texas theater what happens at the Texas theater and why you think that he was under hypnosis as well that he had been programmed some of the traits he displayed I, I think that, that Lee Harvey Oswald was, was uh, programmed and had undergone uh, hypno-programming uh, even when he was in Russia. And, and we can tell because of the, there are so many points where uh, he, wrote, he wrote and said different things where even the officials over there that we have said, this guy sounds like he's programmed. Uh, he's been programmed. His statement, you know, saying he wanted to become a member of the, the Soviet uh, Union, a citizen of the Soviet Union and all that, and the way he wrote it up, it was written for him, you know, and, and he, was, he memorized it. And programming is, allows you to, if you really program uh, the way they did it, they could have you say things that uh, you didn't even remember later, and you'd be saving, saying them as if you were a, uh, you know, uh, a college professor. I mean, that's what he sounded like many times. This is a high school dropout. So anyway, back in in Dallas, he he was his handler was George Demorenshield. George Demorenshield had been an intelligence agent during World War II, and his job was to make sure that Oswald was where he was supposed to be, and doing what he was supposed to be doing. And, and they became very close friends. Well, here you have you know we know this guy was an intelligence, and you have Lee. People think it's a, a loser and a hothead, and he wasn't at all. All his friends said he was meek, <laughs> uh, a quiet intellectual. He read all the time, that kind of guy. Um, Nonviolent, even. But uh, so with George DeMarshall, that's a very, very interesting story because when he was tracked down during the House Select Committee hearings, you know, in 77 or so in Florida. They, they were hot on him, and they really wanted to know, you were close to Oswald, you've got to talk to us. And he, he told two investigators uh, that he would, and, 
And then he, when the point came, the day came, he was found dead in his house, gunshot wound to the mouth, right? His wife thinks that he was, he was murdered because he just, uh, he had no um, signs of, you know, inclination toward, toward that kind of uh, end. And uh, there, there is someone that it's in my, in my book who uh, has a uh, history of silencing people, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we, we can't draw, we can't speculate and draw a direct line to this person. But uh, if you read it, you can see the kind, there's so many people that, were, that ended up that, exactly that way. And it was to cover up the crimes that uh, they had committed. I just want to talk about one last coincidence, folks. There was a fellow by the name of James Braden in 1963 in Dealey Plaza. Just at the time that Kennedy was assassinated, he was arrested lurking in something called the Daltex building, which is just adjacent to the school book depository where many people felt that Lee Harvey Oswald was. This fellow, James Braden, as it turns out, was mafia-connected. They arrested him. They questioned him. He said he was, get this, folks, he was in the Daltex building looking for a telephone, no cell phones, right, 1963, looking for a telephone to call his mother because of the assassination. He was such a good guy, he wanted to call his mother and let her know right away. So, fast forward five years, just outside the Ambassador Hotel, not far, Bobby Kennedy's lying in his own blood. Guess who else is picked up for questioning? James Braden, same guy. Coincidence? I'll let you guys decide. Folks, our guest tonight, Patrick Nolan, the book, I urge you all to get. This is going to put a lot of pieces together for a lot of people. It's called CIA Rogues and the Killing of the Kennedys. Patrick, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. And uh, great book. Great research, by the way, my friend. Terrific. Thanks for your help, Brian. Thank you. And uh, don't be a stranger. We'll talk again. We'll talk about some other subjects and great books that you've written as well. I'll get in touch with you off air. Anytime. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next time. Witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.